Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would, open them up to Esther chapter 5. That's where we find ourselves in this account, in the biblical narrative of the story of Esther. You know, it's actually a story much broader than Esther. She's a central character in the narrative. Uh, But it's a national story for the Hebrew people. This was the telling of their salvation. You know, we're thinking about Memorial Day and we think about major battles. We think about ways that, you know, we've had independence and, you know, wars that that we have won, etc. This story for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people, even to this day, is a story that they tell about God's salvation for them as a nation, for them as a people. So while you're turning there, let me just recap where we've been. We're about 500 B.C., so about 2,500 years before now. It's during the time of the Persian Empire. King Xerxes is on the throne. In the NASB, it's translated Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus, but it's the same man. He, what we know about him from history is he is a brutal ruler. He uh, tried to conquer lands. He wasn't always successful in war, but we do know that the brutality of the Persian Empire was very real. And in the midst of this very um, evil kingdom and this evil king, you have a, uh, a, a woman of God who's sort of been planted there as the queen, this young Esther that's been chosen to be queen. And she enters into this unknown situation of being married to this brutal dictator in the Persian Empire. And we see how the story plays out that this man named Haman, who's very evil, we'll see that again in our text today, uh, he has plotted and convinced the king to wipe out the whole Jewish race because he has, uh, he's holding something against this one Jew named Mordecai. Well, Mordecai happens to be Esther's uncle. And Mordecai goes to Esther and says, here's what's going on. Here's the plot. Here's the law that's been passed. You and only you, Esther, might be in a position to do something about it. Would you go to the king? And you remember what Esther's reply was from two weeks ago. I can't do it. I I can't open my hand to that request because I will lose my life. I will lay it all on the line. But Mordecai just leaves it at that. He leaves God to do his work in Esther through this question. The question is, who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this? And I think that question actually is a seed planted in Esther's heart that begins to bear fruit. And so last week, Lloyd Uh, taught us through the rest of chapter 4 of Esther, this idea that Esther was transformed from a woman whose identity was wrapped up in just doing whatever anyone told her to do in order to survive to someone that was willing to lay all that on the line and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to do this for the sake of my people and for my God. And if I perish, I perish. And the question that Lloyd left us with last week is, what would it take in your life, what kind of transformation needs to happen for you to get to that place in your heart of whatever this is God's calling me to? Maybe it's the thing that you wrote down in your bookmark two weeks ago, right? This thing, this Esther moment in your life of maybe God is calling me to something bigger than me. The only way that we can be transformed from the place of fear to the place of saying like Esther, if I perish, I perish, is if God does a work in our heart, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. In fact, our sermon's going to break down into two sections because we have the whole chapter 5 to cover, and the text breaks down very cleanly into two sections. One section's focused on Esther and how she begins to work out her plan, how this I perish, I perish moment for her is going to be put into action. That's verses 1 through 8, and there's a lesson in there for us. 
an application for us in there. And then 9 through 14 feels like a hard right turn in the text. It, it takes the focus off Esther and puts it on the enemy, Haman, and what's going on in his mind that very night after this banquet that we're going to be reading about. And there's something interesting about Haman, and there's something in there for us as well, some way that I think we need to identify with Haman as much as we may not want to. There's an application for us in that part of the story as well. So let's jump in with part one. We'll just go verse by verse as we typically do, and I'll make a few comments and then apply it to our lives. Esther 5, verse 1. Now it came about on the third day. Now let me pause and just say this is the third day of the fasting. Esther had organized a fast before she goes to the king that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, that's a lot of words, but don't get lost in the words, the description of the entrance in the palace and the throne room and where the king was. Don't lose the idea that this is the dramatic moment. <laughs> this is the moment that this has been building to. This is the life or death moment for Esther. Because for her to go into the throne room unannounced, for her to interrupt the king sitting on the throne doing kingly business, whatever that happened to be at the time, she was taking her life into her hands. In fact, she's supposed to die. We know there's one law that happens when someone interrupts the king, when someone comes uninvited, and that is that they will die. And there's only one hope for Esther. That's the king will find favor with her. The problem with that is we also know from earlier in the text the king hasn't been finding favor with Esther. Esther's not in his good graces. He has not asked for her in 30 days. We don't know why. Maybe he's just tired of her. Maybe her beauty has worn off to him and he's finding comfort somewhere else. But for whatever reason, he has not called for her in 30 days. She is out of favor with the king. And she boldly goes into the throne room. Notice she puts on the royal robe, a reminder to herself and the king. This is my privilege to be the queen. I am your wife, Ahasuerus, lest you forget. She has prepared herself. She boldly goes. This is the moment of tension. I think you can cut the tension with the knife. Let's continue in verse 2. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, you know, this is drum roll, pause, she obtained favor in his sight. <laughs> Exhale, right? The original audience would have been like, oh, thank you. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Let's talk about the golden scepter. You know, you've seen... Uh, maybe images. In fact, there's a famous image that was uncovered through archaeology of a king of Persia. We actually think it was Ahasuerus' father that's sitting on the throne. And in his right hand, he's got the scepter. This was the symbol of his rule. It means there is one man and one man only that is above the law. He makes the law. He can change the law. He can grant pardons. He can punish people. And in this particular case, Esther finds favor. So he offers to her, he extends to her the golden scepter. This is a pardon. Now Esther has to do something to receive the pardon. And this is interesting if you think about it. What does she do? She goes up to the king and she touches the scepter. Now here's what's happening symbolically when, when Esther touches the scepter. She's saying two things. Number one, I am submitting to your authority as king. Right? I'm coming under this authority of your pardon. And number two, she's saying, I'm also receiving the privilege 
of your favor, the privilege of the pardon. So I'm submitting myself to your authority. In other words, she, what, what if instead of touching the scepter, she just would have said, you keep your scepter. I don't need no scepter. Your law is messed up, right? I should be able to see you anytime I want. I, I'm not under that silly law, right? It, things would have gone very differently. She still has to submit herself to the king. So she submits herself to him, but at the same time, she's being lifted up, you see. She's getting a pardon. She's finding favor in his sight. Now, I couldn't help but think about the gospel when I thought about the golden scepter. So allow me just for a moment to go there. Esther is a lawbreaker. Regardless of the fact that the law was foolish and the law was silly, Esther was a lawbreaker. That was her legal status as soon as she interrupted the king. She receives a pardon through the extension of the golden scepter. And what does she do? She submits herself to his authority and she receives the privilege that comes with the pardon. This is what you and I do when we receive the gospel. See, we're lawbreakers, right? We don't earn our way to God. In fact, Scripture teaches us in the middle of our lawbreaking, Christ died for us. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the golden scepter extended to us. And all we do is we touch it in faith, you see. We say, I'm trusting that this offer of grace forgives me of my sins and restores me into right relationship with God so that I don't have to be under punishment, see. But at the same time, we're also submitting to God's law. We're essentially saying, God, you are king. You are ruler of my life. You are creator over me. So it's both a submission and it's also a lifting up into your privilege as forgiven child of God when you trust Christ. Now let's continue to go through in the story and we'll pick it back up in verse three. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Interesting, the king says, what is troubling you? He obviously knows something's wrong. Only something big would compel Esther to break the law and risk her life to speak to him. This phrase, up to half the kingdom, is a little bit of a figure of speech. You'll hear it repeated over and over again. We find it in other places in Scripture too. It doesn't necessarily literally mean, you know, carte blanche, but it is a good sign. And here's why it's a good sign. The king is sort of verbally and publicly obligating himself already to grant her request. Now, he could go back on that. He could do whatever he wants. He might just, you know, when she finally does get to the reason why she needs to talk to him, he might say, well, that was just a figure of speech, don't you know? Right? I was being polite. I'm not going to save the people, the Jews, whatever. There's, she's not out of the woods, but it's a good sign. Let's read, uh, let's continue through the, the rest of this part of the story, verses four through eight. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman Come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is, it, what is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Why doesn't she just 
mention her request initially when she's under his favor before he changes his mind? Why does she invite him to a banquet? And then while he's at the banquet, why does she invite him to a second banquet? Right? She's had two opportunities now where he said, whatever it is, up to half the kingdom. And each time she's deferred, she's delayed. Now what's going on here? Is Esther just afraid? Is Esther, you know, does she lack the courage? No, I think she's actually working a master plan. This woman knows what she's doing. Two reasons why I think this. Number one, back in chapter four, verse two, there was a little note that said no one was allowed to wear sackcloth in the king's presence. Now, what this means is the king has chosen to insulate himself from bad news, from grieving, from mourning. He wants only people who are happy, only people who are going to tell him what he wants to hear. Esther has to talk to him about something hard. Esther has to talk to him and engage him at a level that he doesn't want to hear. Esther has to say, your right-hand man, that Haman that you've elevated to this power, he's been scheming. And my own life, because I'm a Jew, is on the line here, you see. She's going to force a hard decision of the king. And she knows to do that willy-nilly, just to barge into his throne room and do that in front of all of his attendants and everyone else that would have been in that scene may not be the wisest of choice. Number two, she also knows her husband loves a good banquet. Remember chapter one? This is the same man that, that hosted a six-month banquet. And then, by the way, chapter two, there's another banquet when Esther's queen. Chapter three, there's another banquet after that law is passed. You know, Haman and, and the king are banqueting. They're, they're drinking and celebrating while the rest of the city is in confusion. Esther's going to say, have another banquet. I know this is the way to your heart, right? I think this is a smart Smart woman. And then finally, the last reason I think she does it this way, and I think this is the reason why she does not only one banquet, but two banquets, is because every time the king says, up to half my kingdom shall be given to you, whatever you request, he's obligating himself. He's, he's going in a little bit deeper. And at the point that she's actually going to make her real request, he would have said that phrase three times. Three times. She's making it harder for him to say no. This woman knows what she's doing. Now, here's some application for us. Before we move on and talk about Haman, I want to see what we can learn from Esther. I believe Esther is a great example of what it looks like to co-labor with God, to work together with God. In other words, have you ever wondered as you've entered into something challenging in your life or, or maybe whatever it is, maybe your day-to-day -day work or life or parenting or your job, what does it mean for me to do my part and God to do his part? Am I supposed to do it all? And, you know, you know God helps those who helps themselves kind of deal. Or am I supposed to just sit back and, well, if God wants me to get the promotion or God wants this to happen or God wants my kids to turn out right, they're going to turn out right. What's the tension Right? What's that sweet spot between me doing what I'm called to do and God doing what he's called to do? How do I work or co-labor with God in this area of my life? This is what Esther is doing. So let's break this down. What did Esther do and what did God do in this scenario? Let's start with Esther. Esther did a lot. She organized a fast, end of chapter 3. She created a plan and I think some of this was God-given wisdom of how to make this request known to her husband. But she created the plan. She executed the plan. She organized the banquet, right? She would have had to give a lot of orders to get food cooked, et cetera, et cetera. She wore the right clothes. She chose her time wisely. She knew her audience. She did all that she could do. But in the end, she couldn't do it all, right? The king was 
not favorably disposed toward her. She can't change his heart. Doesn't matter how pretty she looks, doesn't matter what clothes she's wearing. If the king has decided he's not happy with Esther anymore, she can't do anything about that. She cannot change the king's heart. But who can? Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of who? The Lord. In the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know if Uncle Mordecai had taught Esther this proverb or not. Pretty good chance that he had. Esther knew. I'm going to do all that I can do, but there's something that only God can do, and that's to turn the heart of the king to see me with favor, to change his mind about me. That's only God's work. Here's how I'd summarize it. Esther did all the work that she could do. God did the work that only he could do. And I think this is the principle for us. As we co-labor with God, I think this applies to our parenting. I think this applies to our work. I think this applies to whatever that challenge is or that opportunity that you wrote on your bookmark. How am I going to enter into that? What's my part? What's God's part? Here's the principle. Do all the work that you can do. Then trust God with the work that only he can do. Now let's tease this out a little bit. I thought of an illustration that might help. I don't know how many of you in here like to garden. I'm not a gardener, but I really appreciate it. Right? In fact, one of my favorite places on earth is anywhere where there's a beautiful garden, like a botanical garden, where there's good landscaping and there's beauty. And, and I ask myself, why do I love being in these environments? Why does it kind of bring me peace to my soul? Why does it inspire me? And I think one of the reasons is a beautiful garden is representative of this co-laboring process between man and God. Man's creative abilities, man's efforts, but God's ability and effort. You see, you can plant a seed, you can till the soil, you can fertilize it, you can water it, you can set up the irrigation system, whatever it is, but you can't provide the sun. Without the sun, that plant goes nowhere. You, you can't create that seed, whatever's embedded in that DNA by its creator, to produce the kind of flower or the fruit that you're hoping for. You can't do any of that, see. God does all that. You see, gardening is a co-laboring activity between man and God. Isn't it interesting that that was man's original vocation? Adam was a gardener, right? You see, God essentially put him in the garden and said, all right, Adam, use all the raw materials that I've created around you, and I want you to work with them. I want you to do your part. And your part, Adam, is to work with the raw materials that I've created. You and I will co-labor together so something can flourish. That's what gardening is. Now, as I've thought about this, I've realized it is true in a sense that all human work, all human activity, all human endeavor is in some sense gardening. In other words, there's a part for us to do, but we can't do it all. Another way to say it is you can work as hard as you want in your job and your parenting and relationships and everything else, but only God can make your work bear fruit, you see. We're gardeners. Now, here's the key in this is for us to know where our role ends and God's role begins, for us to do all that we can do, but then trust him to do what only he can do. I've made a list of some of the things that only God can do. Only God can soften a heart. Only God can 
open someone's eyes to see truth. Only God can do that. Only God can create life. Only God can heal brokenness. Only God can save souls. Only God can bring good out of tragedy. Only God can transform lives. Only God can bring someone back to him. Only God can answer prayer. You can't do any of those things. But they're God's specialties. Last night after I taught this message, I had a woman come down to talk to me and she had tears in her eyes and she said, I've got another thing to add to that list of things that only God can do. And I said, oh yeah, what is that? And she said, only God can write my story. She said, I've been trying to write my story and only God can write it. Yeah, yeah. When I heard that, I thought of Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart, a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. You see the gardening in that verse, right? You see the the co-laboring. Do all that you can do, but trust God to do the things that only he can do. Now, let's read about Haman. Let's take that hard right turn in the text and see what we can learn from the enemy in the story and what's going on in his heart. We'll pick it up in verse 9 and read all the way through the end of the chapter. Then Haman went out that day, glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger because of Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows, fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Just a couple of exegetical notes here. The word that's translated gallows, In our minds, the English word gallows brings to mind the wooden structure with the hangman's noose on it, right? That's a gallows to us. That hadn't been invented yet at that point in time. That was not the way that the Persians killed people and executed people. That was not the means by which they did it. Here's how the Persians would kill people. They would impale them on a pole. Now, what's interesting about The word in Hebrew that's translated gallows is the literal translation is simply tree. Have him hanged on a tree. So rather than thinking of someone's neck getting squeezed, picture someone being impaled on a wooden pole. That is more than likely what's happening here. Now, the size of the pole of the gallows is significant. 50 cubits, 75 feet approximately. Now, the room we're sitting in now, I'm guessing the ceiling's probably 35, 40 feet high. Double that. 
This is a massive pull. Now, why would Haman want this? There's only one reason why you would do this, especially do it in this kind of manner, dramatically way up high, so that the whole city will see the shame of Mordecai. That the whole city will know this is what happens when you fail to honor Haman. This is what happens when you make Haman mad. You see, his body would sit up there. The plan was for Mordecai's body to sit up there until it rotted, until the birds would literally fly and eat it away. This is the way things were done in this empire. Now, Haman, Haman, Haman to me is a fascinating case study. Here's why I think that. Haman has a problem, but his real problem is not what he thinks it is. Okay? Listen to his frame of mind. In, in verses 11 through 12, he recounts all of his glory. He's gathering his wife and friends around and he's saying, listen, I've got wealth, I've got privilege, I've got power. There's no one in the kingdom except the king that's as well off as me, that has privilege as me, that's got all this wealth. I'm the second most powerful man in the world. That was true. And then he says this, none of that can satisfy me because there's this one man. In other words, there's this one thing in my life that's keeping me from enjoying it. All these good things, I can't even enjoy them. I can't even rest. I can't even have peace because of this one thing, because of this one man. Here's what Haman is essentially saying. Someone is stealing my joy. My lack of happiness, my lack of contentment is someone else's fault. So here's where Haman is going wrong. He can only see the problem out there. He can't see the real problem in here. What's Haman's real problem? It's not Mordecai. It's his pride. It's his hubris. It's his vanity. It's his need to have everyone bow down to him. It's the fact that he can't even rest. He can't even relax unless everyone is acknowledging his greatness. You see the problem there? You see the brokenness there in his own heart? You see the evil that had taken root in his soul? That's his problem. Yet what he's doing is he's saying, no, I don't have a problem in here. The problem's out there, you see. The problem is Mordecai. Now, this is familiar to us. We don't like it to be, but it is. We can have all these things going well in our lives, right? We can have family that's healthy. We can have financial provision. We can have all these things. We can have jobs that we can show up to in the morning. But there's always that one thing, that one relationship that's not quite right. That one thing that we wish we had, but we don't fully have it. That one gap, that one lack, that one thing that was done to us that was wrong. That, that one thing, that one thing that's keeping us from having peace, that's keeping us from having joy. Someone or something out there is stealing our joy. You see, this is how we identify with Haman. This is true of us. Now, here's the thing. This can be bitter. Uh, sorry, this can be subtle. Your bitterness can be subtle, is, is what I was trying to say. I want to give you an example from my own life because honestly, as I was thinking about this text and thinking about Haman early in the week, I was like, I'm not like Haman. I can't identify with Haman's anger, you know, with Haman's bitterness. I, he, he's, he's a messed up man. I'm not like this, right? And then, and then I, uh, I came home from work on Tuesday, Wednesday night, and the girls wanted to go to the pool. We got three daughters, right? It's pool season. 
okay? I bet some of you in the room have been to the pool like five times in the last seven days like me, right? So Tuesday, I get home from work. I'm tired. The kids want to go to the pool. I didn't really want to take them to the pool. I looked at Jody. You know, she, she kind of had enough with the kids for the day. You know, I get that. You know, she needed me to just sort of it, 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 take them away. So I said, kids, I'll take you to the pool. You know, they're like, yay, jumping up, you know, high-fiving me. Jody is like, thank you. You're such a good dad, whatever, you know. And I'm like, win, win. But I got to the pool and I thought, I can have a win, win, win because I can have a little me time too. You see, there's this little shaded area. I thought, I'm going to sit in the shade, have my phone with me. I'm going to catch up on some news. You know, I'm going to read some articles I've been wanting to read. I'm just going to relax a little bit. I kind of deserve this. It's been a long, hard day. The kids are happy in the pool. The problem is my kids would not give me what I wanted. <laughs> they kept saying, Daddy, look at this. Daddy, come play. Daddy, why won't you get in? You know, and I would have to keep getting up from my nice, comfortable spot in the shade to go over and look at them. And at first I was sort of like, okay with this, right? Isn't that cute? You know, she's jumping in, wearing a little floaties and all this kind of stuff. It's cute, right? After a while, I got tired of it. I got a little frustrated. Then they started arguing over the, the what do you call that thing? The, the noodle. Thank you, the noodle. They started arguing over the noodle. And Karis, our five-year-old, is just like crying and she won't give me the noodle. And I get so mad inside. I come out from under my shade. I pick Karis up out of the pool. She's crying. And I notice I'm not picking her up as gently as I normally would pick up my five-year-old. <laughs> and these words come out of my mouth. Girls, what is wrong with you? This is the last time I'm going to take you to the pool. I can't even have a moment's peace because you guys can't get along. All right. My heart was furious. Now, I wasn't going to go kill anybody. <laughs> Lord willing. <laughs> but in the depths of my heart, you know what was going on? Someone's stealing my joy. Someone's not giving me what I want at this moment. And I can't enjoy the blessings of my girls because they are right now not human beings. They are obstacles to my comfort. They are obstacles to me getting my agenda done, whatever I want to do, my relaxation, my unwinding. You see, they're getting in the way. That creates frustration. Do you know what creates anger and frustration and bitterness in your soul, even in subtle ways? It's when you don't get what you want. That's the bottom line. Do you see something wrong in here? Do you see yourself in Haman, even just a little bit, even in a subtle way? What's the answer? Well, in this case, it's easy to see. Do the exact opposite of what Haman did. All right? And let me, let me tease that out in a couple of ways. Number one, rather than seeing your problem out there, Mordecai's the problem, Mordecai's the problem, you got to first see your problem in here. Right? Sounds a little bit like Jesus, right? You know, before you can take that speck out of your neighbor's eye, you have to see the log in your own eye, right? You have to see the selfishness of your own heart. You have to ask yourself, why am I so mad? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so resentful? It's because they're not giving me what I really want, right? I, I have some selfish desire I've got to work through. You know, I was thinking about this, and I thought about James chapter 4. The first three verses of James chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. This, this is like a, a sword that cut to my soul when I thought about this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Here's what James is saying. Underneath your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, your disappointment, your frustration, underneath all of that, there is something inside of you that is not content. There is a war inside of you. And James uses these words, they're the selfish desires of your heart. They're your own wrong motives that are intended to be used on your own pleasures. In other words, we have a heart problem. How do we deal with the heart problem? How do we deal with when we don't get the things that we want and we begin to be angry and bitter? We have to remember the list from before. We have to remember that changing a heart is something that only God can do. And so what James is saying is you need to ask for that. You need to talk to God about that. You need to have a conversation and ask him. And when you ask, you need to make sure that this is not just about you getting what you want at the end of the day. It's not just about your selfish pleasures, you see. You have a heart problem. Haman didn't understand his heart problem. He only saw the issue out there. So what did he do? The worst possible thing. He got the absolute lousiest advice that anyone could give him. And the advice sounded like this. Deal with Mordecai. Build a gallows. Make it high. Hang Mordecai on the gallows. Impale him so that everyone will see who's right and who's wrong. What was Haman doing with the gallows? He was projecting his own sin on someone else. He was saying, my lack of joy, my lack of comfort, my lack of satisfaction is your fault. And you're going to pay. Haman, by constructing this gallows, is refusing to acknowledge his own heart problem and he's punishing someone else for his sin. Whose gallows is he actually building? Those of you that know the story. Whose gallows is that going to be? Haman's. Haman's. When you deal with anger this way, when you deal with frustration this way, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to take it out on someone else. Girls, I'm not taking you to the pool again. What's happening? I'm hollowing out my own soul. I'm planting the seed of bitterness that is blinding me from enjoying and appreciating the blessings that God has given me right in front of my eyes. I am impaling myself on my frustration. This is what we do. We build gallows. We blame other people. We say, unless that person changes, until they give what I want, until this need of mine is met, this desire that I have is met, I cannot have joy. Notice the advice from the wife of Haman to Haman. Go kill Mordecai and then joyfully go to the banquet. In other words, once the problem's out of the way, you can have joy. That's not how it works. Now, here's how I want to close this with a little bit of application for us. Some of you have a 75-foot gallows built on the inside of your soul. You're disappointed 
that something in your life isn't turning out the way that you wanted it to, the way that you hoped it to. You're angry, you're bitter. You might be thinking, whether literally or, or, or just more subtly, I can't be joyful because someone has wronged me. I can't be joyful because I don't have that house on the hill. I can't be joyful because my, my work is a mess or my kid is rebelling. I can't be joyful because my wife and I don't have a great marriage or she's not giving me what I want. I, I can't have contentment. I can't have peace. I can't have joy. And the shadow of this enormous place of death dominates your life. You're impaling yourself. You're hollowing out your joy from the inside. What's the answer? How do we deal with frustration and anger and bitterness? Because we all have it. Some of us under the surface, some of it, it pops up very visibly. How do we deal with it? The answer is not to build a gallows, but the answer is to say, I have a heart problem and only God can help me with the heart problem. I need grace. I need the scepter. I need to go back before the king and touch the scepter and say, I am right now both submitting myself to your rule, your authority, what you've given me and what you haven't given me. But I'm also acknowledging my privilege before you because you've found favor. I've found favor, sorry, in you through Jesus Christ. You go back to the good news. You go back to the moment that you realize how sinful you are. Now, here's the paradox of the gospel. This is beautiful to me. You don't need to build a gallows because someone has already been put on the tree. Someone has been hung on a tree for you. And that gallows, that tree, that wooden structure that Jesus died on was not intended for your enemy, was not intended for you. It was intended for him. You see, he went up there so you don't have to. He went up there so you don't have to put your spouse, your father, your mother, whoever wronged you, you don't have to put them on that gallows. Jesus died in your place. And this is what we do as Christians. We go back over and over and over and consider the cross. And the paradox of the gospel is the more that you see your own sinful heart, the more that you see how broken you are and how sinful you are because it's true, the more you see that, the more you appreciate grace the more that you can relax, the more that you can sit back and say, I will take joy in what God has chosen to give me, not complain about what he's chosen not to give me. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the work that God can do in your heart. And remember, it is work that only God can do. You have a part to play. You can repent. You can put yourself in the right posture. You can confess your sin. You can do all that you can do, but then trust God to do what only he can do, which is to transform your heart. And he does that through the good news of Jesus. Put your trust in that. And because this is something that only God can do for us, we're gonna pray for it. This is how we're gonna close our service. Would you bow your heads with me? And I wanna ask God to do this work. And so, Father, on behalf of this congregation, myself included in this, the people that are in this room, the people that are watching and listening, I pray that you would do a work of healing, that you would do a work of transformation, that you would take hold of the selfish desires that we have for our lives to go the way that we want them to go, and that you would speak words, yes, of admonition, but also words of comfort. Right, that we would both submit ourselves to you, but that we would also receive the good news of our privilege as a child of God. And that by reflecting on the cross, 
by reflecting on the one who died for us, who was hung on the tree so that we don't have to put anybody else on the tree and we ourselves don't have to get up there. I pray that you would transform hearts. I pray for the men and the women that are struggling right now with some area of their life that they're so hurting with, that they're so, they, they desire to be free, they desire to be beyond this and Father, only you can do that. And they're asking you now and I'm joining them and pleading with you, would you work that in their hearts? And for all of us, Father, in large ways, in small ways, may we come to you, may we come to the cross, reflect on grace, and find ourselves filled with gratitude. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend.